Welcome to Ask the Dean. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm the co-founder of MAPT. I'm joined every week by Rachel Grubbs, the other co-founder of MAPT, who has 20 years' experience in the pre-med and test prep world, and by Dr. Scott Wright, former executive director of TMDSAS and former director of admissions at UT Southwestern Medical School. Ask the Dean is a weekly Q&A we do live exclusively for our MAPT members, and this podcast is a recording of that session so that everyone can benefit from that knowledge. Let the knowledge flow. Ass mapped episode 114. Oh my goodness. I like the number 14. It feels auspicious to me. So uh, welcome back to another weekly edition of Questions and Answers with Free Health Experts. Um, your typical host, Ryan Gray, is actually at a podcast conference this week. So he's with us in spirit, but not with us in his physical body. And uh, one of your wonderful hosts, uh, Verenia Granum is on vacation. So this week you get three of us. Uh, for those of you who may not know me, I'm Rachel Grubbs. I am one of the MAPT co-founders. I've been advising pre-meds for about 20 years. So I'm excited to let you pick my brain today. And uh, we'll introduce the other folks, uh, Courtney Lewis. Hi. Uh, Courtney, you come to us uh, from a stint at Director of Admissions at Burrell College of Osteopathic Medicine. Just left them a few weeks ago, and now you're with us. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. These are my favorite parts of the week. So happy to answer anything and everything that comes in if we yeah. can. Me too. Yeah, we, do, we don't always get to every question, but we get to as many as we can. Um, hint, guys, we get to the ones that are concise and don't give life stories. <laughs> just, just a little pro tip to you. <laughs> Dr. Scott Wright, let's introduce you. Hello, so hello, hello. Uh, you are the most veteran advisor on our team. You've been with us since the very beginning. We mm -hmm. keep adding more people to uh, round out our amazing expertise, but you were yeah. the original dean and asked the dean. Oh, yes, 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 <laughs> yes. It's, it's been a great ride. It's been exciting. And I, I love I, I, I like Courtney. This is one of my favorite times of the week. It's so much fun to answer your questions and to hear your concerns and uh, and be able to address those. And so we we're always excited to be here. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's start looking at the comments and see what we got. All right. Osant. Osant says, my GPA for the last for my last 25 units of science courses in undergrad was 3.65 all upper division. Did a post back, ended up with a 3.66 for 28 units all upper division. Is this upward upper trend good enough? I assume you mean upward trend. Well, uh, I feel like there's a couple different ways to answer this question. Dr. Wright, what do you think? Yeah, so uh, you know, I, I'm a little bit. I, I, I'm going to assume that when when Osant, when you say units, that that means credit hours. Uh, and if if indeed that's true, and you've got 53 uh, credit hours of upper division uh, science courses, that's that's a good amount of of what schools want to see. Uh, they're all upper division, all science. Uh, so I, I would definitely say, yes, that that's a good upward trend. Uh, depends. You didn't say anything about where you were starting from in terms of, you know, were you at a 
you know, 1.3 to start with and, and you built up from that or, or were you at a 3.0 and built up from that, that will affect things a little bit in terms of how we're looking at it. But I, I would say most medical schools are going to uh, look at that and see uh, a really strong upward, upward trend, really strong work in the last uh, 53 hours of your of your experiences. The fact that it's all upper level, all uh, science is going to be uh, exactly what they're going to want to see. So yes, I, I think uh, I think this is now the question that you're asking is this good enough? That's a loaded question right there. Is this good enough? I mean, who knows if it's good enough for for it may be good enough for one medical school and not for another. So. You know, this is where you put yourself out there and and you apply and you see what happens. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. Uh, Courtney, anything you want to add there? You know, it, it always comes back to the same thing. I think a lot of stuff is at play in the application. So looking at it in an isolated way is always just a little bit difficult to say, is this good enough when we're just talking about GPA and trends when we don't have a little bit more information? But it does sound like you have above a 3.6 for, um, as Dr. Wright said, 53 uh, credit hours. So it it sounds good in theory, yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I don't know if you necessarily needed much of an upward trend. It, it depends on, on where you're applying and how heavily they weigh that. But no, I agree with everything that, that Dr. Wright said. It's just, it's a little bit hard to answer without a bit more information, but isolated, it sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah, the final thing I would say I chime in on is, Osan, if you have time, go enter all of that into MapDAP. You can create a free account at uh, map.com. Just click the start for free button. And after you've entered all of your courses, so we can see the full trend, right? So we, we've heard you talk about your upper trend, but so we can see all of it. Once you've done that, um, the start of MapDAP always includes a free trial of Map Pro, so you can message with one of us and ask us to take another look. And that'll get at the, the issue that both Scott and Courtney have pointed out, which is we'd like a little more context. So feel free to take advantage of that free service and go fill yep. out MapDAP. Definitely. All right. Other questions or comments from the audience? Looks like we've got a lot coming in. Okay, Matt Mac. Matt Mac says, when sending update letters, is it appropriate to include additional hours you've completed for activities since submission? Or should you not bother since AMCAS has a projected hour slot now? Dr. Wright, what do you think? Um, yeah, I would say uh, if you're applying through AMCAS uh, to uh, allopathic schools, uh, no need to include additional hours because that will be included in your AMCAS application. Now, I don't think that ACOMAS has that. Courtney, is that right? That Courtney, uh, that, that they don't have uh, anticipated hours in, AM, in uh, ACOMAS? So you can actually pick future dates on oh, okay. your application. Okay. So you can project it into the future. Some okay. schools will kind of revert it back to the time that you actually submitted your application since you hadn't actually completed mm -hmm. those hours that you're reporting, but there is a way to enter it. Yes. Okay. So I, I would say an update letter should include only new things, new things that were not included in your application. Uh, and, and again, I will emphasize how important it is that these letters be short to the point. Don't go on and on. Do not reiterate things that are, are, are already in your application. Uh, it, so it needs to be short and sweet to the point, get it over with. 
Uh, if it's too long, the likelihood that they're going to read it goes way down. Yeah. So short to the point. And too long didn't read. <laughs> Sorry, what'd you say, Courtney? The the abbreviation for too long didn't read. Oh, TLDR. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I was I was thinking also substantial, right? Like yes. Matt Mac, if you only have additional hours, then I don't know that that like we said technically Correct. it's probably not worth it, but also like. Is that substantial? Now you said to include, so it makes me think maybe you have something else, but I think the update letter should be something that you think really changes your application. And frankly, it's only August. It's only been two months. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's yeah. a little early to send an update. Yeah. Um, I don't think we said this yet. So make sure you checked that the schools you're sending an update letter to allow update letters because uh, not all want them. Mm -hmm. So check that out too. Mm -hmm. All right. What other comments do we have today? Natalie. Natalie, hello. Hello, smiley emoji. She says, I'm taking biochem, microbiology, neurobiology, and two easy classes, question mark. Oh, that makes me nervous. <laughs> uh, I want to know what your easy classes are. Right. Uh, I'm not sure if I also include studying for the MCAT. I'm not sure what you mean. Like, are you asking if you can do MCAT studying on top of all of those courses? I'm going to assume that's the question. Mm -hmm. um, and my answer is maybe your mileage may vary. Um, my general rule of thumb for the MCAT is that you need to respect it and you need to give it more time than you think it takes. Um, in my 20 or so years of doing MCAT prep, I found the most common mistake students made was to give it about two months when they needed about three or four months. Um, some people need five or six because it kind of depends on if MCAT is a really big part of your life or if you have a super busy life and MCAT prep is a smaller part of it. Um, there's no magic formula. There's no number of weeks or hours that gets you there. But it seems like most people need in the neighborhood of 300 to 400 hours of studying. Um, and it's pretty hard to do that in two months. Um, now, I have seen I've seen people prep for the MCAT in six weeks and be happy with their results. So, again, there's but I've also seen people who needed two years to prep. Right. So so everyone's going to have an individual result. But if you're thinking about the January MCAT and you're worried about whether or not you can do it in this semester, what I would say is go for it and then reassess when you're you know, six or seven weeks out and see if you're starting to see movement in your practice test scores. Um, and uh, also, if you're aiming for January, maybe you'll have some break, depending on how your life is structured. Maybe you'll have a break between the semesters, like often the January MCAT is before school goes back. Mm -hmm. So you may be able to do slow and steady for the next four months and then a big push for the fifth month. Um, so, I mean, I think you just have to jump in and find out. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to, you know, jeopardize not only your studying for the MCAT, but also your studying for, I mean, biochem, micro and neuro, those are three meaty classes there. And so, and I know you said two easy classes. I don't know if it's like underwater basket weaving or whatever, but uh, you, you, you want to make sure that you're not, that you don't overload so that you're jeopardizing either side of things. Right. Good point. Yeah, biochem is going to show up on the exam. So you're going to be reviewing some topics while learning biochem new. And then, you, again, we don't know what the two easy classes are. Maybe it's an hour of underwater basket weaving, which maybe is super relaxing. Or maybe it's a humanities course, in which case I'm going to push back on easy classes because 
unless you're getting 132 in cars, you probably need to work on your critical thinking and critical reading and writing skills. Mm -hmm. um, and those will help you in all four sections. Yeah. Um, but yeah, generally, uh, I want people to take, if they're hoping to apply to the um, med school next year, I want them to take the MCAT in January or March. So I would say for any of you who are thinking, oh, I'm applying next spring or summer, you should be working on an MCAT prep plan now. And like, it doesn't mean you have to be in it, but you should be working on the plan. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I, that was the, the comment I was going to make was having a plan. If, if you are going to try to fit what you just mentioned into a very short amount of time, you need to be really disciplined with sticking to a schedule, having it yep. laid out, um, being really honest with yourself. But, but coming back to the discipline, this is not going to happen and you're going to do well in each and every one of these without a very clear plan and some discipline. And so if if you know that you tend to get a bit overwhelmed or distracted or you know you are concerned with any one of these courses, maybe you you push it back a little bit. Like have some have some self-awareness, have some honesty. Um, but if you think it can be done, obviously content um, is going to be built you you know, if you're making it to these courses, you already have a lot of other content under your belt. So if you need to get Anki decks or things just to keep flashcards and keep refreshed and, and things on the, the other sections, you can definitely do that and work that in. But sometimes it's not a content issue. It's a test taking issue. So if you have other standardized tests that you've taken before and can reference and know if you tend to, to do well in standardized tests, maybe this is it's not going to be too much of an issue. You understand the way questions are written and things like that. But if you yeah. tend to struggle in those, you know, you're going to need a little bit extra time. You're going to need more full length timed practice test to get an accurate read on where you're at. So yeah. it's, it's going to take some scheduling and discipline for sure to, to balance everything that you just put in there. Yeah. But we have five months till the January exam. So it's still possible. Yeah. I say, go for it. Doable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. I think we had another MCAT question, if you guys want to bring that back. So Cameron wants to know. Oh, nope, not an MCAT question. Uh, that, we'll come is. back to you, Cameron. I promise. We didn't mean to tease you. Cartier wants to know, uh, if I take MCAT in April 2023, how long is the result still valid for med school application? Well, the answer, Cartier, is that you need to do some research because it varies by school. Um, some schools say two years, some say three, some say four, some say five. Um, twos are pretty extreme. It's more likely going to be three or four. Um, get nods from the other admissions. So mm -hmm. yeah, good luck. Go research. But if you're if you're going to take it in April and then apply in the next year or two, you should be fine. Yeah. Yep. Cameron, we didn't forget about you. Is it a good idea to put another student as an activity section contact for a student organization without a faculty advisor? Sure. Sure. I mean, the chances they're going to contact that person are almost zero. So, uh, you know, yeah, you can put another person, uh, you, you know, in some for hobbies, you have to put yourself. So, right. Yeah. yeah and um, I don't know. I don't remember off the top of my head what ACOMAS and TMDSAS say, but AMCAS explicitly says put someone who can who was your supervisor, if possible. And if not, put someone who can vouch for you. And if you have to put yourself, that's fine. Just be prepared to explain why if asked. Mm 
Right. So I think you're thinking about it in exactly the right way, Cameron. Yep. I would I would go to a peer before I went to myself. Yep. Agreed. Lily. Lily says, Dr. Gray, he's with us in spirit. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Gray emphasizes consistency in extracurricular activities, especially clinical. If we're not sure we can regularly do something like shadow over a long, consistent period, should we wait to start shadowing until we can? No, I don't think so. I appreciate this question, Lily, but it, it might be a little bit of like overthinking or worrying too much that like you have to take our language literally. When we say consistency, what we mean is on and off continuing, right? It doesn't have to be once a week or once a month for the next 36 months, right? It's just what I wouldn't want to see. And this is what I think Dr. Gray, Dr. Gray is advising against. I don't want to see you get all your shadowing the summer between freshman year and sophomore year and then go, that's it. I'm done. I don't need mm -hmm. any more. Because that kind of sends me the message that you didn't like it. But if you do some this summer because the opportunity arises, I mean, summer's basically over. So you do some this fall semester because the opportunity arises. And then maybe spring semester, you don't have a chance, but then you do some again next summer and it's kind of goes like that. That to me would still count as consistent. Yeah. I just want to see that you didn't approach it as a, check I did the bare minimum and I'm yeah. done. Yeah, I see Scott making a check, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, I, consistent should just mean if I look at the four or five years that you were pre-med, do I see clinical happening sort of sprinkled throughout? Mm -hmm. So for both clinical and shadowing, because keep in mm -hmm. mind, shadowing is not the same as clinical. Um, that's, but for both of those, I just want to see it continuing to happen, that you are mm -hmm. continuing to explore it. It doesn't yep. have to be a perfect schedule. No one's going to know what your exact schedule was. No one's going to ask. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Ooh. The llamas squads, the, the, the llama squads. Okay. Well, <laughs> Mr. Llama, what are my chances of getting an MD interview if I already have six DO interviews this cycle? Uh, your chances of getting an MD interview are greater than zero if you apply and zero if you don't apply. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Uh, a little glimpse behind the curtain here. We can't see what MD schools you're getting interviews to. So um, those application systems don't don't chat. So congratulations on getting six DO interviews. Absolutely. That's be awesome. There's yep. so many amazing DO institutions you can attend, but the MDs are not going to say, ooh, they have six. They can't see that information. Yeah. So yep. and and your profile picture isn't even a llama. I'm a little bit disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it a cat? Yeah. I think some kind of big cat. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. <laughs> uh, Karam says, my Casper score was in the second quartile. I believe what contributed to lowering my score was the fact that English was not my first language. Will a Casper score make or break my application? Um, well, the short answer is we never know because only the admissions committees get to decide that. Uh, the longer answer is if they're doing holistic review, no one data point should make or break your application, right? Mm -hmm. They're taking many, many data points into consideration when they're mm -hmm. looking at you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and my suspicion would be that uh, a Casper score in the, and I get confused because it's backwards for Casper, right? So the second quartile is 
the second best, right? Is that it? Do I have that right? That's the way I read that is as okay. opposed to second to the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's not a bad quartile to be in. And number one, I that. And then number two, uh, I don't think that a, uh, you know, I, I think a Casper score of a really bad Casper score, in other words, the, the lowest quartile could be concerning, but I don't, I don't know that medical schools are at the point yet where a Casper score in and of itself outside of any other, any other quality in your application is going to doom it to the, to the waste paper bin. So I, I don't think, uh, I don't think you really have a, cons uh, a, a reason to be concerned at this point would be my, my uh, estimation. Yeah. Agreed. Mm. McKenna, our friend McKenna, what's the most common mistake students make in interviews? I bet we could all come up with some, so maybe everyone can give one short answer so we don't, yeah. you know, do a, a whole hour session. By the way, we did an hour session about interviews twice this month, so we can get you guys those links if you want the longer answers. Yeah. So, Scott, I'll let you go first. Common mistakes students make in interviews. Common mistakes, I would say, to me, the A number one mistake is lack of preparation. Uh, they don't, uh, students don't practice. Uh, you need to practice with uh, with yourself in the mirror, video yourself, uh, but also use your pre-med advisor or whatever resources you have at your institution with uh, others, mentors or whatever. I would avoid family members, but preparation is really important. Uh, and in, in terms of preparation, I also mean doing some, some background information prep on the institution that you're interviewing at and uh, knowing uh, the location, you know, some information about where it's, where it's located. Uh, I, uh, I, interestingly enough, I had an interview prep session this morning, uh, somebody that was interviewing in, in uh, Alabama at the Alabama College of Osteopathic Medicine. And uh, this particular uh, student uh, mispronounced the name of the town where the school is located. So uh, little things like that. Uh, you know, uh, so, you know, just kind of keep in mind that you want to you, you want to really uh, investigate these things and prep as much as possible so that you're uh, really ready. OK, so under preparation, common mistake. Courtney Lewis, what's another common mistake? <sighs> Dr. Wright took mine. That is my number one and I'm just going to back it up and then I'll pick another one, but not, not doing your research on the area, on the school, on what they're about, what their mission is, what their outcomes are, not paying attention. I guess I can kind of transition into that on the interview day. Pay attention, please. Please be engaged on that interview day. We are giving you information, especially in introductory presentations or panels and things like that, that we want you to have, that we think highlights our school, what you're getting. And we want you to ask us questions. If it would weigh on your decision or you want more information on stuff, that's the perfect opportunity to get those questions asked and, and answered. So come with questions. Pay attention on the day. If you sit in, and this has happened to me before, if you sit in on my introductory presentation that's 45 minutes long, and I give you the background, the founding of the school, the curriculum per year, all the 
you know, things that you can get involved in. And then you go into your interview and you can't talk about the school. That's a problem. So pay attention. Make sure that you get up. You are prepared. You don't hop yourself up on too much coffee or caffeine and you're you're ready to be engaged, but not jittery. And so take advantage of of the interview day to also interview the school. Ask those questions, be involved and engaged, and it will go a lot better. And it will, you know, it's not just for the 30 minutes that you are sitting in with two interviewers. It's supposed to be all of the sessions that they give you. So make sure you're engaged and get the most out of it. It's not just, you know, another step in the process. It really is an opportunity. So that would be, um, I would say, a, a common mistake would be to just come in so hyper-focused on your 30-minute interview that you do not take advantage or you are disengaged from the other portions and then it will kind of come back and bite you. Yeah. Um, I agree with that. Oops, sorry. I took over the camera and I'm not supposed to. Um, yeah, so before we go, I'm going to get to Andrew's question in just a second, but what I'll add just briefly is in terms of uh, most common mistake, I'm going to say over-preparation by which I mean scripts. So Scott said, prepare, 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 practice in front of camera. Your preparation should be thinking about the kind of questions you're going to get asked and what things you have to say. But if you're not having a coffee shop conversation, we're going to know. So you're not writing out scripts and memorizing them. You're letting your beautiful, brilliant brain create sentences on the fly because it will sound more authentic. That's normally how you talk. Um, so just make sure that as you're preparing, you're still keeping it loose and dynamic because the interview could be about a really, really touchy medical issue like um, forced birth or abortion, or it could be about the tennis you wrote about as a hobby, right? So you just got to be ready to go with the flow. Mm -hmm. Correct. All right. I think we had another. Andrew, should I start prepping for interviews even before I get an interview invite? Yes, I absolutely think you should. And I'm going to mention that we do interview prep, but this is not a sales pitch. There's lots of free or nearly low cost interview prep out there. So I think, yeah, it's visible behind me right there, right? So uh, Dr. Gray's med school interview book is about 13 bucks on Kindle. It's got a long, long list of interview questions that you can practice from. We've got a bunch of free videos about interview prep. The reason I think everybody should prep now rather than waiting for an interview is with the advent of virtual interviews, it's not uncommon, it, not, not too double negative, it's common to only have a few days notice. So we have students we're helping right now who have interviews on September 2nd. And currently the next appointment we have open is September 6th. So, you know, and we're not always that booked, but it's kind of peak season time. So if you wait until the Thursday you get the interview for Tuesday and then say, you know what, I'm gonna, hop on MAPS website and see if they've got someone available, we may or we may not. So if you're, especially if you're looking for external help, you want to plan ahead. Mm -hmm. But even internally, this is more like riding a bike than you think it is. Like once you've done that preparation, it's going to stay with you. So why not do it now when there's lots of free stuff coming out about it because it's interview season and when you're at the point where early interviews are possible? And then, you know, maybe you'll get an interview in September. Maybe you'll get one in March. But either way, you're ready. Yep. Agreed. Joey yeah. Hey, everyone. I'm currently working as a clinical research assistant during my two gap years. 
My job is currently 50-50 clinical, non-clinical. Would you recommend splitting into two activities? Yeah, maybe. Um, that's actually really common with clinical research assistants. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it's exactly like you said, Joey, it's splitting it, right? You never want to double count hours. But if you feel like half of the stop and half is not, then, you know, it's going to depend on how you want your activities to go. Um, you know, with some of the application services, you have shorter characters, but unlimited activities. So you can list as many as you want. With AMCAS, you only get that precious 15. So maybe you're splitting into two, or maybe you're only talking about 50% of the hours that you think are the most relevant. Mm -hmm. um, but it's absolutely fine to take one activity, sort it into different classifications, and then just assign the proportion of hours to each one. That's totally mm -hmm. cool. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Amadi Smat. I'm on a pre-med route, decided to take my first two semesters at community college for financial reasons, after which I will transfer to a university. Will this hurt my chances to get into med school? Courtney Lewis. What do you think? Um, I don't think so. I think it's fairly common, um, especially like in the California system, to have a bit of community college at the beginning. I would caution you to not take your core prerequisite courses at a community college and wait to take those at a university if possible. Um, if you are going to take them at a community college and they're the early on ones, okay, it, it's not going to rule you out. Um, so I would say it wasn't uncommon to see. I don't think it will really hurt your chances unless you really tank those and um, and really struggle those first couple of years. Uh, but we understand that uh, financial reasons can definitely come into play. Right. And, and we don't want to rule anybody out because of that. So, I mean, I would I would lean. No, I want to give you kind of ideal situation. Best case scenario. What's what's not going to remove you from things, but it, it shouldn't. Um, hurt your chances and have a significant impact unless there's other things that come into play with what you're asking. Yeah, I would add to that also to say that um, one of the things that we want to see when you're transitioning from one school to another, in particular when you're transitioning from community college level to the university level, is a consistency in terms of your scoring. Uh, so, for example, if you're making a 4.0 at the community college level and you uh, when you transfer to the university, you, you're ending up at a 3.2, then this is this is a concern for the uh, can be a concern for the medical schools that when you get to a more rigorous environment or when you get to more rigorous coursework, uh, it your your GPA goes down. Uh, so you want to be consistent. So if you're performing at a high level at the community college, then you want to perform at a high level at the university so that there's consistency between the two. Yep. So I was just thinking that's such a good and common question that Ahmad, I think you can be our lucky winner for our giveaway yeah, that we do like some that. shows, but not all, just to keep yeah. everyone on our toes. Yes. So Ahmad, if you're still listening, email us at info, I-N-F-O, at mapped, M-A-P-P-D dot com. And just say, hey, I was on Ask, Ask Map today, and Rachel gave me the giveaway. And we'll set you up with a year free of Map so you can track those GPAs as they go up and up, we hope. Awesome. All right. Karina. Karina says, what do you think about previous health co-workers? I love them. 
Example, paramedic. She says, I chose to get a bachelor's in emergency med that builds on top of the paramedic license so that I could have a lot of PCE. Yeah, I love to see patient care experience. Um, this is a common question that we see, and I definitely want to let the directors of admissions um, weigh in here, but here's the way I see this. The more clinical experience you have, my guess is in most cases, that means the more easily you're going to be able to tell me, here's why I like interacting with patients, and here's why I'm driven to be a physician. So I think previous health coworker is nothing but upside. Now, the yeah. other piece of this you said is I chose to get a bachelor's in emergency medicine. Sometimes when that happens, the science courses you're taking, while very rigorous, aren't the specific ones the school designates as part of the pre-med path. So your, your clinical experience to me is a giant win. The thing I think you need to double check is, because this also happens sometimes with bachelors of nursing. Yes. I love to see nurses become physicians, but sometimes they have to retake some of the sciences they took to make sure it's at the right course that qualifies as a pre-med prereq for that school. Yeah, that's right. Okay. That's now right. it's from our director's yep. admissions. Okay. Let's yep. move on then. <laughs> oh, Isabella says, I love my mock interview with you, Dr. Wright. Woohoo! Yay. Yay, Isabella. I, I enjoyed it as well. I remember it well. So excellent. <laughs> Good work. Thanks for the plug. We didn't even ask her to say that. <laughs> What's next? Carmen, is there any chance of being interviewed in your native language besides English, for example, in Spanish? Uh, here's my thought, Carmen. You're going to be interviewed in whatever the language the school is teaching in, mm -hmm. right? Because that's the one that they want to converse with you and, and see your fluency. And that's the expected common ground is whatever language the school uses. Mm -hmm. I have seen professors, uh, interviewers, who when the applicant said they were fluent in a specific language, the interviewer starts uh, communicating in that language to see exactly how fluent you are. That has happened before. Okay. So uh, I don't think that that's the same thing that you're talking about. But so but I, I would be surprised if there's any school in the United States that would interview in any language other than English. Well, I'm thinking Puerto Rico, right? Okay, Puerto Rico. Okay. I'm, yeah, in yeah. my mind, Puerto Rico is part of the yes, U.S. Yeah, yes. but other than that, I, I don't think any okay. in the lower 48. Right, right. And yeah. Or yeah, the other I, two. <laughs> Good. Well, and, and usually, well, not usually, but a lot of the times um, you're going to have two interviewers sitting in. And so one may know the language, but the other one may not. And you don't want to disclude them. So like Dr. Wright said, there may be some some banter back and forth if the person knows um, that language and, but it's, it's not going to be conducted predominantly in that. Right. Right. Uh, oh, we had this last week. Hecro Pabo. Hecro, you got to tell me how to say your name. Is taking a research gap year worth it if your goal is to go to a T20 or better or competitive to go to med school in a desirable location? I'm a little confused by your word choice here. Is research gap here worth it? It's up to you. <laughs> um, I think you may know if you've followed us before that the general attitude here is that T20 is not a very meaningful thing. You're talking about top 20, but by whose definition? By the US News World Ranking, you go look at some of the things they use to break it down and it's, um, it's a lot of professors self-identifying, right? Like the categories mm -hmm. they use mm -hmm. tend not to involve 
um, student feedback mm -hmm. and tend not to be based on um, things that are quantifiable. So I would take that list with a boulder of salt. Um, but that said, there are some schools that are very research heavy that say, if you go read their website or listen to admissions, you know, interviews with the directors, say, we expect no prior research, we'll teach you when you get here. And then there are some med schools that say, yeah, we'd like to see a lot of prior research. Now, obviously, if you're MD, PhD, it's different. But if you're just talking about MD or DO, it's just going to depend on your yep. interest level and what the school wants. Yep. And I, and I will I will add to that that I worked at a top 20 uh, uh, medical school, at least in terms of the uh, US, U, U.S. News and World Crap Report. Uh, oh, did I say that out loud? I'm so sorry. <laughs> Uh, um, and, uh, so, but, but having said that, in, in my experience, about half of our students came in with research experience and about half came in with no research experience. It wasn't something that we required. It wasn't, you know, if you have it, we're going to look at it. We're going to evaluate it. We're going to see what you know about what you did and how it impacted you. But if you don't have it, it's not a, it's not you know, a big, uh, a big X mark against you necessarily. Now there are some schools that that would be the case, but I, I don't think that it has to be the case. Now I, I will reiterate what, what Rachel said. If you're interested in research and you want to do it in a gap year, go for it, do it. Uh, absolutely. It's not going to be a negative in your, in your uh, uh, record unless you, you know, and the, unless the wheels fall off during your, your research year. Uh, so, you know, if you want to do it, go for it. Great. What's next? Assis wants to know, volunteering is shattering overseas due to an international student. Red flag? Uh, you forgot your verb there, friend. Um, yeah, uh, it doesn't have to be. So if you're an international student, it's possible that some of the experiences you got either doing community service or shadowing physicians was overseas. And that doesn't have to be a red flag at all. The challenge is a lot of U.S. med schools, especially with, um, with shadowing, are looking to see that you've shadowed a U.S. physician because being a physician in other countries can be pretty different um, just because we've got such a funky, weird way of managing our healthcare here. Um, so having that overseas experience does not have to be negative, but it, it may not completely answer the prompt, right? You may still need some U.S.-based experience. Mm -hmm. Nods from Scott. You want to chime in on anything there? No, uh, I agree with that. You want to make sure if you're doing overseas stuff that you don't do anything that you wouldn't do in the United States. Right. So if, if you're a foreign physician uh, in the overseas experience says, here, hold this retractor and do this, you know, if you do that, you don't want to talk about it in your application. I would encourage you not to do it because you're not qualified to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And I took his question literally volunteering and shadowing. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, sometimes people say volunteering when they mean clinical. Yeah. So yeah. I was not I wasn't answering the clinical part yeah. of the question. But yes, good point. Don't don't brag about crazy clinical things you've done because it's not not going to do you any favors. Nope. Georgina. How, how likely am I going to get into med school with no research experience, but two years of clinical? Uh, I mean, it's, good. you asked that, I think, right, as we were answering that research doesn't matter that much unless the school says it does. 
Um, research is probably the most overrated student activity. And I'm always seeing people point to these graphs that say, but look at all these students who got accepted who have research. Yeah, because students keep telling themselves this myth that research is required. Um, and it's not bad. It's just understand that research as a pre-med is about you following your passion, where research in med school is going to help your residency match, yes. right? So if you're trying to prioritize all the things you have to get done as a pre-med, then research shouldn't be at the top of the list unless you personally just really love it and want to. It's going to matter a lot when you get to med school. Does it matter as much as many students think it does now as part of the pre-med process? Karen Gow, I was wondering if it's too late to submit an ACOMAS app. Would doing it at this point be perceived negatively? Let's let Courtney Lewis, recent director of admissions of a DO school, answer this one. Okay. Um, Short answer, no. You can definitely still submit an ACOMAS application. What I would do is be thoughtful and, and do a little research. So if you go on to the Choose DO Explorer, you can look at the schools and on each of their pages for the ones that you may be interested in, it will give you um, a, a date or a deadline that says, you know, kind of for for best consideration, submit before this date. And so that will give you a little bit of insight into whether it may be late in the cycle to be applying to some of those DO schools, but a majority of them are cycling through applications for a couple of more months. I know that there are some that will look at your verification date, and if it's not by a certain benchmark, then you kind of miss that time frame. So if you do your research and you look for that for best consideration thing, I think you can have um, informed designating and no, it is not too late. And I'm sure a lot of DO schools would still welcome applications um, for, for the next little while. Yes. Great. All right, what's next? Caitlin, how should I navigate getting an LOR from a science professor that I haven't spoken with in a while? I graduated in 2021 and will be applying next cycle. Okay, well, step one is get a time machine. Go back <laughs> to that year that you were in class with him. No, I mean, I'm obviously only joking, but for people who are in Caitlin's position or are worried they're going to be, anyone who's currently taking science classes with someone they like, the answer is tell them now, hey, I'm applying to, applying to med school in one year, two years, three years. And I'm going to need a letter of rec, and I'm hoping maybe it can be you. Can I keep in touch with you? Right? So you're not even getting them to promise to write the letter. You're just saying, can I keep in touch? So that's the dream, right? So if the ideal thing, Caitlin, would be time machine, um, and I just want that for anyone listening, go ahead and start having those asks and building those relationships now. The other thing to keep in mind is a year is a lot longer for you than it is for someone who's probably twice your age. So they, they might remember you. Just reach out. Um, you know, if you're on campus and they're there, maybe find out when their office hours and, and are and swing by. But, you know, just say, you know, I had this class with you. I liked you a lot. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to write me a very strong recommendation. Yeah. And then, yeah, if possible, ask in person because you're looking for the eyes and the pause, right? Mm -hmm. If they're hesitant, 
you can give them a graceful out. <laughs> um, you want someone who is excited to write you a letter of rec, who knows you well, who has great things to say about you. Yep. And just adding on to that, if they don't remember you and, and you run into that, but you still need a letter from them, do the legwork, right? Have them get to know you now. Have, you know, bring refreshers for them. And, you know, you may have to talk with them a couple of times and, and they may not remember you from that direct class, but at least they'll have positive interactions and you're building rapport with them now. So it may not be ideal, they may not be able to recall you, but there are things I think you can do to, to help them feel comfortable writing you a strong letter, as Rachel said. Mm -hmm. So it may just take a little extra work. Yeah, it really does go, and, and I want to broaden this conversation just a little bit, uh, as uh, Rachel, as you did, in terms, for, for those of you that are listening who are not at this point yet, uh, network, network, network. Network with your professors get to know them. Uh, network is Networking is very important in all aspects of life, not just in this process or in, in the business world, but in all aspects of life. Get to know people. Power, and, and I don't mean power in a, a pejorative way, but power comes from relationships. Yeah. So build relationships. And, and build those relationships that are going to be meaningful now, but also meaningful in your future. So uh, keep, keep up the good work. Uh, but I agree uh, completely, uh, Caitlin, uh, just reach out. Just, uh, you know, and, and if you have to build that relationship now, do that now. Yeah. I think we could do a whole workshop on letters of rec because yeah. networking can be, I think, very intimidating yep. um, for someone who's younger in their academic or professional career. Um, I have joked before that the secret to networking is being nice, staying in touch and getting old. But the truth is, just it gets easier because you've amassed more yes, people over time. Yes, right. Yes. But the truth is, it's mostly just the first two being nice and staying in touch. Like yeah. I, I have had, you know, I, I've because I've been in test prep. I've had thousands of part-time employees over the years. And, you know, you remember different people for different reasons, but the people I tend to remember are the ones who, even after they move on, you know, I can't be an MCAT yep. teacher anymore because now I'm a med student. That's fine. I wish them well. If they still shoot an email every year or two, then I don't forget them. And then when they pop up four years later and say, actually, now I need you for a reference for something, I still remember them. Yeah. And I don't I don't take offense at that. Like I appreciate getting those four line emails that are, hey Rachel was thinking of you. I did X today. I just thought you'd think it was cool to know. Like I love those short, sweet emails. Yeah. No one's gonna take offense at that. No. Jolie, oh Jolie. I've taken the MCAT five times. Just for those who are only listening, then there's the face palm emoji. Um, Jolie says, I know it's a red flag. How should I explain the retakes? I was just juggling too many things, work, school, and kids. So Jolie, I'm going to start by saying you are not the only one. Um, I've seen other people who have taken it that many times. Um, I will remind you that seven is the lifetime limit. So I'm less worried about whether or not it's a red flag for you. I mean, it's not great, right? But we, we don't have the time machine, so we can't fix that. I don't know that you need to explain the retakes unless you get to the point where you're asked a question that is like, if there's something on your application that you think needs an explanation, please explain it. So like, maybe that's going to happen in secondaries. 
my bigger concern for you right now is you only have two times left and I don't want you to need that seventh time. So you just told me, you know what you did wrong. You were juggling too many things, work, school and kids. So my big ask for you, rather than explaining it, is can you reflect on all that? Can you talk to whoever's in your support system, right? Um, you know, that can help you juggle those things better. And my guess is you were probably not trying to do prep while also being a student or a mother. And can you get, you know, is there someone in your family who can take over the kid part and not just have you in the house, but you get to go to a library for five hours, right? Like, I think it's those kinds of conversations that you need to have. Like, what are you gonna change mm -hmm. before you take it again? I'm much more concerned about that than about how you explain your mistakes. What I want you to do is explain them to yourself and to fix them and then prove by the better number that you figured it out. Mm -hmm. Completely agree. Good luck. Yeah. Rhino, is there a way to know whether you'll be physically able to handle med school if you have chronic illnesses? Whew. That's a big one. Wow. Um, wow. So, I, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, I would say read the minimal technical standards yep. that yep. are published and see if you know, kind of reflecting on the information contained within the minimal technical standards that are, are, are pretty much employed at med schools. Um, if you think you would struggle or if the accommodations that you could have at med school would be enough to to help you kind of manage that would yeah. be my first go to. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, and, and I would add to that that some medical schools are more apt to make accommodations and to work with you than other medical schools. They're, they're, every medical school has their own ability to kind of, you know, work with that. And there have been uh, in the United States, now obviously it's not a, a large number, but there have been blind medical students, deaf medical students. Uh, there have been medical students that are in, that are, you know, physically abled in different ways. And, uh, and, and so I, I would say, uh, exactly what Courtney said in terms of looking at the uh, technical standards, what are your challenges, and uh, and maybe go to one of the medical schools that are, or, or email them and, and just ask them um, if there is somebody there at that medical school that can help you examine this as, as something that you're really you know, looking at and, and see, uh, see what they can do. You can find on the websites for the medical schools who they're um, point person is for disabilities uh, and, and, and contact them and, and, and just, you know, explore that and, and see, uh, see what the possibilities might be. Yeah. Yeah. The thing I would chime in there is um, uh, a year and a half ago. So at national pre-med day, uh, May, 2021, we did a session with um, a physician who is um, currently does his work from a wheelchair. Now his situation was a little different because he actually had an injury that happened after he had gone through med school. But um, I believe he's at, I can't remember the fellow's name off the top of my head, but if you just go look at National Pre-Med Day from May 21, you'll find it. And um, it's it's Disabilities in Healthcare is the name of the session he led. And he, at uh, University of California, San Francisco, they've started a whole program about disabilities in healthcare from all perspectives, right? So from, from patients, from med students, from, from physicians, from other healthcare providers, so even if you're not thinking about going to UC uh, SF, 
it could be looking at that program and maybe connecting with some people there just to see what insights they have to offer. So I, I completely agree with what Scott said about talking to the med schools, but also it sounds like from the way you worded this question, that maybe you'd like to talk to some other people with chronic illnesses mm-hmm. who can share their experiences. Yeah. Um, so that that could be another way to approach that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, good good luck, Rhino. I, I you know I don't don't uh, you know don't limit yourself. Uh, you know, yeah. dream go for the stars, dream big, and uh, there will be medical schools out there that will work with you. Uh, depending on what your, you know, what the the situation is, so uh, so good luck and just keep, you know, keep keep fighting. Yeah, and there will be patients that are so glad to have a physician who gets it. That's so right. yeah, that's yep, yeah, like absolutely. I mean, it's always a fight to find a place in med school, right? I mean, fight maybe isn't the right word. It's a, it's a challenge, right? But yeah, but yeah, I hope you, I hope you go for it. Yeah. We probably have time for one more. It's one five to the hour. Yep. King Joe. Could the information from this channel be useful with applying for PA school? Well, thank you, King Joe. Yes. We actually, part of the reason that um, we try to say pre-health questions, not just pre-med questions, is that even though currently most of the people who attend these sessions are pre-med, we are um, experts in in a lot of pre-health arena. Um, Scott, I'll put him back on camera, mm-hmm. was um, you were the associate dean of undergraduate education and pre-health advising, right? Yep, that's uh, correct. Verinia, who's on this vacation this mm-hmm. week, has 10 years of experience advising pre-PA, pre-med, pre-dent, pre-farm, you know, you name the pre-health. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yes, one is a lot of the med process and the PA process are the same. Very similar. So mm-hmm. much of the advice we've given today applies. And also, you should always feel free to ask a PA-specific question here, and we'll do our best to answer just like absolutely. we do every other. Yes, absolutely. And you know, King Joe, uh, uh, I, I, you know, you know, a- absolutely, a lot of what we say here is applicable to really any competitive, competitive application process school. So, uh, you know, PA schools are in some ways even more competitive than uh, than medical schools yeah. are. Uh, typically because the class sizes are so much smaller. And, uh, and so what I would say is uh, a lot of what we say here is very applicable to, uh, to what you're going to be going through for, uh, for PA school. Absolutely. Definitely. So come back next week with more questions. Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, I think we'll wrap up there. Um, so uh, live every week, Wednesdays, 1 p.m. Eastern. So that's what 10 a.m. Pacific. Uh, we're here with Ask Mapped, at least some portion of the Mapped advising team. Um, so I hope you guys will come back uh, and join us again soon. And uh, we'll see you, see you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. This is Dr. Gray again, closing out. I hope you learned something from our session today. If you haven't yet checked out Mapped, I invite you to try it for free for two weeks by going to mapped.com slash podcast. Track and navigate your journey to medical school using the only tool like it for pre-meds. We'll see you next week here on Ask the Dean.